do take a seat, and if you have your Bibles, please have it open at Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 48. And before we look at our passage this evening, let's come before the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Dear loving Heavenly Father, your son Jesus said that man cannot live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of your mouth. So Father, as we come to look at your word, we ask that through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would open it up to us, that you would open our minds, and that you would ingrain it on our hearts. Father, would you help us to be like the Lord Jesus. And Father, may everything that is said tonight bring glory to your name. Help me, Father, as I preach your word and proclaim your son, Jesus, and help us all to listen. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, David Moyes was appointed manager of West Ham back in 2017. He took the team from relegation fodder to finish regularly in the top half, and he even won a trophy, the Europa Conference. This was the club's first serious silverware in 41 years. And he even has West Ham playing an exciting football type of football, which involves containment and surprise attack. Some games West Ham only manage 20% possession, but remains a very effective style that works. Undoubtedly, Davy Moyes has been a massive success for the club. However, there is a section of the club's fans who don't like Davy Moyes' style and have missed the successes the club has had under his tenureship. Two of my relatives are such fans on game days, I simply mute the family WhatsApp group chat. It can be unbearable. Even on days we win, they, like many fans, find something to moan about. But then there are West Ham fans who can see the success that he has brought. The silverware, the progress of the league, and love him. And some even adore him, calling him the Mosiah and King Davy. A clearly successful manager, adored by some, loathed by others, one man, two very different responses. Well, in today's passage, we will see two types of people. We will see those who have both seen and heard Jesus, but yet respond very differently. And then there is a serious warning to those who miss who Jesus really is. Well, right at the beginning of Luke's gospel, he tells us the aim of writing was to give certainty to Theophilus and his first readers to who the Lord Jesus is. And as we look at our passage this evening, I hope that like them, we too can see who the Lord Jesus is and respond accordingly. Well, 
our passage this evening, it's a significant text in Luke's gospel. We have been traveling with Jesus since he predicted his death and set off resolutely to Jerusalem in chapter 9. And tonight we look at a passage that tells us about his arrival. And we're going to look at this in two points. Firstly, King Jesus arrives, the triumph. And secondly, King Jesus rejected the tragedy. Well, first up, King Jesus arrives, the triumph. In verse 28, we read, after Jesus had said this. Well, this is referring back to the previous section where the Lord Jesus gave us the parable of the 10 minas. And then verse 28 continues. He went ahead going up to Jerusalem. He, he's nearly there. He's just to the east of the city at the Mount of Olives. And here, Jesus makes an unusual request to two of his disciples in verse 30, where he says to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Well, this is implying a kind of purity that destines this animal for the task of carrying the Lord Jesus. And then verse 30 into verse 31 says, untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you why you're untying it, say that the Lord needs it. And as expected, the colt was there. When challenged by the owners, they simply followed the Lord's instructions and replied, the Lord needs it. And they got it. I think this is an interesting little episode. Well, what is going on here? Well, it is here that the culture of the day meets the divinity of Christ, as custom allows for important figures to request the use of livestock for transit. And we also see the all-knowing divinity of Christ, who had complete control of what was going on around him. See, Jesus knew where the colt was going to be located. He knew they would be challenged and everything was as expected. I guarantee you, if you try this on the way home this evening, the car needs your, the Lord needs your car, brother. It ain't going to work, but that's the point. Here, the Lord Jesus had absolute control over everything. And I think this is such an important episode to remember, especially as we read on into Luke and hear about Jesus' time in Jerusalem, which will lead to his death. Remember this episode, despite how things may begin to look on the ground, Jesus has this. Jesus has absolute control. And Luke does not specifically tell us, but this scene was foretold in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And this is what it says. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And Zechariah throughout chapter 9 of his book had foreseen a king who would come in peace and bring peace. 
And this is a prophecy that will be echoed by the crowds as they greet Jesus, which we will soon see. And as Jesus approaches, the people spread cloaks on the road. This was simply an act of respect. And we see this back in 1 Kings 1.13 as King Jehu is anointed king of Israel. So here is the king of peace who has absolute control and is worthy of the people's respect. Well, Jesus is almost at Jerusalem as he approaches. In verse 37, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. They had seen his miracles, which amplified their praise. This was a triumph. They were ecstatic and they shouted, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, this is a quotation from Psalm 118, verse 26. This was sung by the Israelite pilgrims on their way to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. And it speaks of God's conquering Messiah, the king, who with God's full authority would lead God's people as they serve him. And then peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Well, isn't this referring back to Luke 2, verse 14, where the great company of angels praised at the birth of Jesus. So together their praises show an expectation of peace and reconciliation taking place between God and man through Jesus as king. He was the Messiah. However, they don't fully understand what is about to happen to Jesus in that he has come to be that final sacrifice for their sin that will allow for this peace and reconciliation to happen. And isn't Jesus very public arrival here so different to the general pattern that we have seen throughout his ministry where many times we see him not wanting to draw the attention of others on occasions we have seen him withdrawing from public observation retiring into the wilderness and even charging those he healed to tell no man what he had done well not anymore his time has now come and everyone will know it. We are now in the days leading up to his deliverance predicted back in chapter 18. Not from suffering and death, but into it. The Lord Jesus would be delivered over to the Gentiles to be mocked, insulted, spat on, flogged and killed. But before all of that, he wanted to let everyone know that he was the Messiah. He was the king of peace who would lay down his life as a ransom for many and know his peace for themselves. Well, sadly, not everyone was happy. Verse 39 says that the Pharisees could not stand Jesus receiving praise from the multitudes. Knowing there was nothing that they could do, they asked Jesus, teacher, Rebuke your disciples. Ask them to calm down. Jesus, they need to take it easy. Their claims are excessive. Can you feel the tension here between Jesus and the Pharisees? Well, Jesus responds in verse 40. 
he says, I tell you, and this is emphasizing the seriousness of what he is about to say, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Well, I think Jesus' response is dripping with irony, that even inanimate creation understand these things better than they who are so alive. Jesus is saying if they keep quiet, needs to be understood not as something that may possibly happen, but as something that will inevitably happen. Because after today's events, Jesus will receive no more accolades from the crowd. So Theophilus and the first readers, Jesus is the king the prophets foretold. He is the one who has absolute control. He is the one the angels praised and the one who would bring peace. He is the one they worshipped. He is the Messiah, the King of peace. So be confident what you have been taught is true. And well, what about us today? Can we see that all these things are true of him? Are you like the West Ham fans who can see just how great a manager Davy Moyes is or those who don't? Do you recognize Jesus as king? Is he the king of your life? Who sits in the throne of your heart? Who is it you live for? Is it yourself or is it Jesus? Well, if he is your king, then you will know the peace that he offers. And if not, Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 2, tells us that we can be reconciled and have peace with God because of what Jesus did on the cross. He says this includes everyone regardless of race, age, or nationality. Our relationship with the holy God has been broken due to our sin. To remain in our sin is to reject Jesus as king. But to acknowledge our sin, to believe who Jesus is, to believe who the Bible tells us he is, and turn to him, well, this is repentance. And this is to allow Jesus to be our rightful king. And this is the message of salvation that Jesus preached throughout his ministry and was on his way to conclude. And recognizing Jesus as king, what should be our response? Well, it's to worship him. He is worthy of our praise. Jesus is king. The Pharisees, they did not know Jesus. They had no need or desire to praise him. Then moving on to our second point, King Jesus rejected the tragedy. As Jesus moves on, we find him in verse 41, as he wept. And the word translated wept here is the strongest word in the original Greek language for weeping. He knew the nation's heart and his heart was broken because of it. Jesus was on his way to suffer an excruciating death, yet he had no thought of himself here. He is weeping for those who have not recognized and have rejected him. This bears the echoes of chapter 13, 
where Jesus tells us how he longed to gather Jerusalem's children under his wing. And then what follows in verse 42, well, this is a figure of speech that reveals to us why Jesus wept. Verse 42, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. They had seen real blessing. They had seen his miracles. They had heard his preaching, but yet they refused to accept Jesus' message. And now the truth is hidden from their eyes. Willful human blindness to what they could clearly see brought a spiritual blindness. Don't ignore the things of God. Please don't ignore his advances. And then verse 43, Jesus continues, the day will come upon you. Well, this is an Old Testament expression of coming judgment. The judgment that Jesus speaks of here would fall four decades later in AD 70 when the Roman military will crush the Jewish revolt and they will flatten Jerusalem. It will be completely destroyed. And Jesus, knowing all these things, remember the cult, he knows all things. He gives details. He says, your enemies, that's the Romans, that they would build an embankment, encircle you on every side, dash you to the grounds, and not leave one stone on another. Well, this would include the temple and its quasi-self-serving religious system that had been built around it. This horrific judgment would come because look at the end of verse 44. Well, they did not recognize the time of God's coming. They did not recognize the Lord Jesus, God's incarnate son, who offered them salvation and redemption. They had rejected Christ, and this rejection would be costly. Can you feel the pain in Christ's heart here? Can you feel the deep anguish in the Lord Jesus' heart? Here, the Son of God stands and weeps in agony for those who have not recognized him and have rejected him. What a lovely little insight into the heart of Christ. He is not some distant deity striking down from afar. His heart is absolutely broken. Believers, just let that fill our hearts with wonder and awe and worship of our precious Savior. Second Peter 3 verse 9 tells us that the Lord wants no one to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. If you have not recognized Jesus and your needs for him, if you have not repented this evening, then you remain under this coming judgment. That's the terrifying reality. It really is. But Christ calls you to repentance. And as believers, I think it's really important to ask ourselves as well, do you have the same anguish as Christ here for the lost? Do you have this heart of Christ? Or do we have a lazy indifference about the spiritual state of others? Do our hearts break for those around us? 
who do not yet know the Lord? Well, Paul in Romans chapter 9, verse 2, tells of his sorrow and unceasing anguish for the lost and those who are still cut off. Do we recognize this in ourselves? And then we are told in verse 45 that Jesus (coughs) enters the temple courts where he began to drive out those who were selling. What Jesus did here was absolutely shocking. This was like setting a stick of dynamite between himself and the religious leaders. And some in their confusion of who Jesus was as the peace-bearing kingly Messiah may have expected him to go after the Roman occupiers, but instead Jesus went to the temple. This was the very soul of the nation. And by doing so, he attacked the respected, elevated religious leaders of Israel who claimed to represent God. Jesus here was, he was more concerned about their relationship with God than their relationship with Rome. He was moved to action, not against Roman oppression, but against their spiritual corruption. And what was happening here in the temple courts was emblematic of the corruption that made the Lord righteously anger. It had been turned into a corrupt commerce center. The priests could reject many of the animals the people brought to be sacrificed. This was to force them to buy at the temple at exuberant fees. And Jesus, exercising his divine authority, he began to drive them out, declaring, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And Jesus here is quoting from Isaiah and Jeremiah. The first reference, my house will be a house of prayer, is from Isaiah 56, verse 7, which is referring to the temple as a house of prayer for all nations. The area in which the wheeling and dealing was taking place was the area in which the non-Jewish foreign believers were to gather and pray. It seems likely that the Jewish leaders had prevented them from using this area for, com- for commerce, likely caused by their prejudice against the outsider. Regardless, it is clear that God's temple was a place of prayer and sanctuary to all peoples and not just the nation of Israel. Doesn't this give us a glimpse into God's bigger picture of salvation, which includes all people, not just for those we like or those who look like us, but for all peoples from all nations. Then the second quote, but you have made it a den of robbers. Well, this is alluding to Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11, where God rebuked Israel for profaning the temple. And Jesus' affection of these robbers, it was only going to be temporary because coming judgment through Rome that completely destroyed the temple, it will be permanent. For those who continue to reject Jesus as king, God's judgment is final and permanent. Well, we've seen the response of those as Jesus approached Jerusalem. There were those who worshiped and there was those who didn't. And now notice the responses 
of those at the temple. Well, by now, Jesus, he's seen as a real threat after this temple cleansing. So much so, in verse 47, we see the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people, they wanted to kill him. They had heard and seen the ministry of Jesus. They were meticulous in their observations. But yet, they still wanted to kill him. Take that in for a minute. They wanted to kill the Messiah. They wanted to kill the King of Peace. This is the tragedy of this passage. They were the subjects who hated the King in the previous parable. Verse 48, yet they could not find a way. It was not yet Jesus' time. It soon would be, but not yet. And why couldn't they kill Jesus? Well, if you look at the end of verse 48, because all the people hung on his words. Imagine being there. Imagine sitting at the feet of Jesus as he taught. The people who did, they hung on his every word. These were the words of the king of kings. The ones whose teaching throughout his ministry evoked awe and amazement. Well, to the first readers, this passage would have given them real confidence that these things had to happen. They would have heard or possibly even seen the temple being destroyed. Well, they could now have certainty that Jesus' cleansing of the temple and the plotting by the chief priests and the scribes indicates that the whole rotten system had to be raised to the ground. It had to go. Jesus' judgment was right. It was proper. And he had the authority to give it. Simply, it was their own fault. They rejected Christ's advances. But destruction is deserved. And it broke the Lord Jesus' heart. They also needed to grasp that God would no longer advance his kingdom on earth from a geographical center, but instead his mission to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth would be fulfilled by God's triumphant king. They would have witnessed this and they would have been part of the early church as it exploded around the Mediterranean. And what about us today? Well, this explains our agenda as God's people, his church today, led by our Messiah King, enthroned in heaven, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We conduct his work across our city, country, and beyond to all nations, sharing his gospel message of hope and peace. And I think it also serves as a warning to us as a congregation, not to reject Christ. Rejecting Christ will bring about the removal of his blessings. And we sadly see this happening today in some established denominations who have rejected his authority. They are crumbling. We must continue to worship Christ as king despite their rejection. For the year ahead and beyond, we must remain steadfast in our walk with the Lord Jesus. We must continue 
to see our precious Lord Jesus in all his beauty as the king of peace who weeps for those who have rejected him. Like those in the temple, we must continue hanging on to his every word. If you're not a believer here this evening, please don't continue to be like those West Ham fans who miss what their manager is doing. I know that's a silly illustration, but please see Jesus for the king he is. Don't miss out on who he is and what he has done. Well, if you would like to find out more about these things, as Ben has already said, Hope Explored starts here on Friday evenings. It's here for the next three Friday evenings, three evenings, here at half seven. And we're going to look at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And this is going to provide us an opportunity to discover how Jesus fulfills three great longings that we all have, longing for hope, longing for peace, and a longing for purpose. Please do come along. It'd be lovely to have you join us. Well, let's close in prayer. Let's bow our heads. Jesus, you are the King of Peace, the Messiah who has all authority. And Father, you are worthy of all our praise and all our worship. And Father, I pray that you would ingrain these things in our heart and that we would leave here, having been set on fire for you, to go out there into a world to proclaim your good news. And Father, we pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, folks, we're going to sing our closing song. It is In Christ Alone. Oh.